All right, well, I'm going to start, just get right into it here on Judges chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 11. I'm going to read all the way through verse 21, and then we'll get things going here. So, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord has sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then... The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded to their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. All of God's people said, this is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, today we are continuing um, our unfaithful series in the book of Judges. And we are going to look very closely at how Israel, God's people, deal with finally making it into the promised land. And so last week we, we tried to close the chapter on the generation of Joshua. And that generation was by no means perfect, um, but they were considered faithful in that they both knew and served the Lord. And they, that generation, Joshua's generation, had a very real and experiential relationship with God. They had seen God part the Jordan River. They had seen God uh, win the Battle of Jericho, basically using the marching band and the glee club, which is a pretty cool thing to see. And so... And they had these amazing experiences and these amazing victories that they were a part of. And yet with all the battles won and with the relative peace and comfort they had at the end of their life, we get into the book of Judges and we see that the war's not over. There are still these faithless people in the land that God had commanded to be purged. And so Joshua's generation, ultimately, they, they lost the battle of the home front because they failed to train their children to fight or to teach them at all how to know and fear and serve the Lord. So we get to the generation after Joshua, who doesn't know the Lord, and doesn't even know all these amazing things that God's been doing for His people, going all the way back to Exodus. And that brings us to our text, because uh, we're going to see how this generation's idolatry ends up beginning this cycle that's going to be repeated throughout the book of Judges. So we're going to look at that cycle. And then we're going to also look at um, how God's righteous anger towards his people is ultimately faithful and loving. And we're also going to see how this cycle is used by God to train future generations in grace and faithfulness. Right? So, 
opened up by reading this lengthy section of Scripture, so we're going to break it down in, in, into smaller chunks. But I want you guys to see that there's kind of five pieces that happen throughout this cycle. And like I said, this cycle repeats throughout the book of Judges, so we're going to see this over and over again. The first part of the cycle we see in verses 11 through 13. And we see that, that after a period of peace, after Joshua's generation has you know, entered the promised land, the new generation comes up and there's a period of peace and the people go ahead and they provoke the Lord. See, this generation, the generation after Joshua, they'd been raised in primitive temporary military bases. Right? They're army brats that lived in tents. Okay? So they're, they're, they're living in the tents while their dads are fighting against these evil, bad Canaanites who they've never seen. They just have been told their whole life these people are evil, they're horrible, and, and we're going to get rid of them. So they finally come to the place where they, they've grown up, they're out of the woods, they, they, you know, they, they've kind of been in their little camps, um, you know, living in their holy huddle, and all of a sudden now they're in these cities. And these cities are glorious, and these cities are attractive, and, and, and they're robust, and their fathers have, had fought for these cities. And so this generation sees these cities, and they ultimately found them, and they found the Canaanite people and their gods more attractive than the gods of their fathers. And we really can't blame them because, to be honest, if you've been kind of in the woods living in a tent, all of a sudden you come to this city, there's these, these um, sophisticated Canaanites, right? They were wealthy. These cities had probably a Starbucks in them. They had a mall. They had centers of, uh, of art and everything. And, and, and it's pretty cool. And, and the Canaanite people, you know, they had a different religion too. So these kids grew up in a very, let's just say, legalistic home, right, where the whole holy holiday that they have is some goat getting sacrificed on an altar and having the blood splattered all over the place. And all of a sudden, they go into this, these urban, sophisticated Canaanite cities, and, and they're like, well, these people are smart, they're wealthy, um, you know, they, they go to Canaanite high school, and, and these are the rich kids, the Canaanites, these are the kids that got Mustangs on their 16th birthday, right, and, and you're like, you know, living in the clothes your mom made you out in the woods, so you're a little jealous. And so they invite you to all these cool things, like I said, coffee shops, all that stuff. And, and they said, hey, cool thing, our churches, they meet in strip clubs and, bof- and brothels. Not in boffle, brothels, right? So uh, <laughs> realize how that came out. Boffle's a wonderful place, I'm sure. Um, so anyway, they come to these places and it's like, hey, forget mom and dad's religion. I, I'm, I'm going with these Canaanites. And and it's sad because they end up choosing to willingly worship and serve the Baals and Asheroth. And, and this is, it's, when you serve a false god and worship a false god, it's called idolatry. And for Israel, they had known God, or at least should have known God, so for them, they're turning away from God of the Bible and to these false gods, and so it's, it's called apostasy, right? These are words that don't get used a lot in our um, culture, but... But they're strong words because their ideas provoke God to anger because he made these people to worship him and him alone. So God, when they choose this, he has to respond. So first section is is Israel falls into idolatry. Second part of the cycle is God's wrath. He raises up oppressors. See, a generation earlier, it was Israel coming into this land, 
um, with the hand of the Lord with them. They had surrounded the people, the Canaanites. They had gone into their cities and, and plundered them and all that because God had judged the Canaanites rightly as idolaters. And so now, because of this generation's idolatry and going with the Canaanites, um, God just kind of flips the script. And he says, all right, I'm going to put my hand against Israel, and I'm going to actually raise up the Canaanite people, the pagan people, to judge and punish Israel. And so while these verses talk of God's anger being kindled, which definitely means it's, it's intense, God's not responding in an irrational rage. We'll get to more, that more in detail, but he's responding to his people precisely how he says in verse 15 that, that he would. He said, I warned them and swore to them I would respond this way if they disobeyed my commandments against idolatry. And if you go back and spend time looking at the book of Deuteronomy, I'm sure you guys read Deuteronomy every day. Um, if you go back and look at Deuteronomy, you'll see numerous times sin always leads to righteous wrath. So Israel has these new gods, these new gods of sex, these new gods of money and wealth, but even those are unable to keep them, it says in verse 15, from terrible distress. When the wrath of God comes, it hurts. It's not fun anymore. The party is over. So we see the next piece. First piece, idolatry. Second piece, wrath. Third part of the cycle, God's grace. Wow. Verse 16, we see God raises up judges to deliver the people. See, Israel's groaning under the power and the weight of their sin and its consequences. They're grieved by their difficult circumstances and and the pain of, of the punishment they're receiving. But it doesn't say in these verses that they're explicitly repentant. Right? They haven't turned from Baal to God and said, God, deliver us. It just says that they're suffering. So the gospel is here in Judges in a huge, huge way because that same God who initiates righteous wrath is the same God who actually initiates the grace. So the one who gave them over to plunderers in verse 14 is the one who delivers them from the plunderers in verse 16. And there's, there's no repentance in between. And that's not to say we shouldn't repent, but, but it shows that God has mercy. It says in verse 18 that the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. He's merciful to them. And, and this groaning it talks about in 18, it's the same word used to describe what Israel was going through when they were suffering under slavery in Egypt. And God's moved the exact same way. His character from in Egypt hasn't changed into the promised land, and it doesn't change today. And so, despite Israel's unfaithfulness to God, he remains faithful to them. And and he delivers them from wrath and the pain that they deserve. Now, this would be an awesome place to stop at the sermon, right? Because we would just go from, okay, you sin, God punishes you, but then gives grace, game over. Right? That would be awesome, but that's not where it ends. So, what is Israel's response? They don't repent in the grace. It actually says in verse 17 and verse 19 that after another period of peace, the people provoke God again. It's almost unbelievable. They're given grace. They're given a period of rest and reprieve from the punishment. 
And the people again turn from God back to idolatry. So their faithfulness lasts only as long as there's a faithful God-appointed judge. And as soon as that guy dies, they go right back to idolatry. And I think this is a lesson for us. The Israelites didn't own their faithfulness as an individual. They just relied on how faithful their leaders were. So what that means is, they're like, you know what, I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to repent of sin. I don't have to pray for my family. I have a pastor that does that. They didn't own their faith themselves. So as soon as that leader's gone, as soon as there's that person who says, stop sinning, stop sinning, God's mad. You know, as soon as that guy goes away, and they have a choice to actually um, chart their own path, that path just leads right back to the exact same gods that they had gone to before. And so they're back in idolatry, and, and I think it's interesting that where their ancestors were forced slaves in Egypt, this generation willingly sells themselves as slaves to sin. And so God has to respond again. So what's God's response? He rises up oppressors again in verse 20 and 21. It's the same people, it's the same sin, still have the same God, same kindled anger, and the same response. See, remarkably at this point, Israel's sin is actually worse. Their faithfulness, their rebellion is actually worse than it was before. So the people have seemingly done all they can to give God a spiritual middle finger and try to break the covenant that he's made with them. I'm done with you, God. We don't want anything to do with you. And so... God speaks, and he says, I believe it's in, uh, yeah, he says in, in verse 20, Israel's not his people, like he said it before, he now refers to them as those people, right? They, he says, you're not going to take full possession of the promised land. Whoa, that's the whole reason we left Egypt, was to get to the promised land, right? So, no, you're not having it. See, they're no longer under God's protection or blessing anymore. They're now under wrath as miserable captives of sin. This is challenging for us. This is, this is difficult for us, and it, I think it's, it's disturbing for us in a lot of ways because there's some, some really challenging concepts in seeing this cycle. Cycle of idolatry, wrath, grace, idolatry, wrath. I think some things are easy for us to understand. I think that um, because of our self-righteous pride or maybe our guilty despair, I, I think it's relatively easy for us to deal with the faithlessness and the sin and the idolatry of Israel. Okay, we, we get that. If you are a, a self-righteous legalist, you just kind of judge these people and rightly assume that you could do it better, that you'd be faithful. Right? If you are a self-reliant moral relativist, you just give these people a pass. We should all have license to do whatever we want and not be judged by anyone or anything. So I think we get that. None of those responses is right, but that's kind of where our hearts default. Now, if you've been in church for any period of time or you're a Christian, the idea of getting to that place in the cycle of God's grace seems familiar because hopefully if you're a Christian, you've, you know that you're a sinner and you've experienced God's grace uh, for you and, and to you. And so that's not an entirely foreign concept. 
I think the concept that's most challenging, whether you're a Christian or not, or whether you're a believer or not, is God's anger. Specifically, God's anger kindled towards His people. See, He's not irrational here. He's not spiteful here. See, God's anger, like ours, His, his anger is not sinful. God's perfect, so, so He's not led or controlled by it like we often are when we're angry. See, God's anger is rightly described as a faithful anger because it's perfectly felt, his emotions are justified, it's controlled, and it's executed. Actually, it actually causes him to act. And so in this text and during these cycles and judges, God actively raises up pagan, debauched, evil people in and around the promised lands to punish Israel, where only a few generations earlier, he had taken those same people away from the biggest pagan superpower on the planet. This is confusing. This is challenging and difficult. We, 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 we have to do something with this. And I believe that our tendency when we come to sections like this is either to step back and kind of judge God's actions and his emotions, kind of put ourselves in the place of God or, or, and judge and, and assume that we know better or that we would feel differently or we'd be more gracious. Or what a lot of us like to do is just skip these parts of the Bible, right? They're not always fun to look at. It's like when you're, when you're flipping through um, you, you know, TV and on the cable and everything, you get to like World War II and HD. You're like, oh, this is cool. Planes blowing up, ships blowing up, and then it, it gets to the Holocaust. And you're like, whoa, let's go find something on the Food Network. Let's, let's get out of here. This is, let's just ignore that this happened. This is difficult to deal with, and yet I'm glad that those documentaries are there. I'm glad that there's a Holocaust museum in D.C. and that you can go to the places where this happens so you can learn from them. So our challenge today and this is part of why we preach right through books of the Bible, is to not look over the difficult stuff, but to actually engage with it. So we're here. We're here looking at God's anger. And we see his anger, it says kindled over and over. His anger is intense. And it's also intentional. See, his faithful anger exists for his glory and for our joy. And as difficult as it sounds, and it should be difficult, we need God's faithful anger. I know that's challenging, but we need His premeditated, fiery, intense, active, and focused and consistent anger because without it, He can't be a just God, He can't be a trustworthy God, He can't be a gracious God, and He can't even be a loving God. So if you are someone who follows Christ, um, if you claim to follow God, the manner of God's anger displayed in Judges Ultimately, we should see it as positive and comforting for several reasons. This is going to be difficult, but, but, but walk with me through this. First reason why this is comforting. God's faithful anger shows us he is consistent and faithful to his word. And he's faithful to his word because he's faithful to his name, his character, and his holiness. See, turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6. See, when God lays out his law for his people in the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments are specifically about idolatry. 
It also talks about its consequences, and it talks about his love for his people. Start in verse 3, 20 verse 3. Oh, I'm in the wrong spot. Okay. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself to carve image or any likeness or anything that's in heaven above or that's in earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. There's some wrath but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, there's wrath, but there's love and grace in this section. See, by being consistent and faithful in his anger, God actually shows his people that he does what he says he's going to do. This should not be undersold at all, that God is consistent. See, in every earthly relationship we have, there's some level of unpredictability. Whether it's emotional, whether it's in actually following through with details, it is comforting to know that God is consistent. Think about this for a second with me. Husbands, if I told you that if you said certain things to your wife, if you responded certain ways to your wife, she would respond in certain ways. That would be a wonderful thing to know that if I say this to her, This week, and I say it the next week, she's going to respond the same way. She's consistent in her emotions. That would be fantastic. (laughs) Right? And, And guys, we're off the hook. Ladies, imagine if your husband followed through with everything he promised you he said he'd do perfectly and faithfully all the time. Right? Your to do list would get really long and they'd get knocked out quickly. It would be comforting. Our relationships aren't like that, they're they're a little more broken, but. See, God's faithful in his emotions. He's faithful in his actions, meaning we can actually be, tr- be comforted and we can actually trust him that, yes, he'll be faithful in his anger, but he's also going to be faithful in his love and his promises for us. And I think that's incredibly comforting to know that God is consistent. His character is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We can rely on him. But let's be honest. Consistent anger is still a tough sell for us, Right? If we had to choose, or we think if we'd have to choose God's consistent emotion, it would be happiness, or forgiveness, or mercy, or something more fun. But honestly, in our world, we need Him to be faithful in in His anger. Gets us to our next point. God's faithful anger shows us there's justice in the world, and God hates sin and brokenness. See, In case you haven't paid attention, our world is a little broken. It's a lot broken. In fact, sometimes it's seemingly beyond repair. And so most of us don't even watch the news or listen to the news or read the news. We just try to avoid it at all possible. And for news junkies like me, I read or watch or listen, and I'm usually stirred to some sort of frustration where I'm driving my car yelling at the radio for no good reason at all just because I'm upset with the brokenness in the world. Right? That's not exactly a healthy response, but the reality is it is comforting to know that those same things that we see in the world that anger us can anger God. That God actually is up there saying, no, no, there are some things to righteously be upset about. Now, the difference is all of our lists look different than God's most of the time. Because really, if you're a Christian, 
you need to try to align your heart to be angry about the things God's angry about. I think the mistake we make as Christians is to start first with looking outside of ourselves on what angers God. So we judge everybody else inside and outside of the church when it's pretty clear God hates idolatry and sin. We shouldn't have to look any farther than our own hearts to get upset righteously with the brokenness in the world. And that's our, our challenge. That's a challenge. See, God's anger isn't just against sin and for wrath. That's not what it's all there for. It's, it's actually, it's a gospel-centered anger. And what I mean by that is that he seeks to show his intense passion for us and that he uses his anger to actually restore us to relationship with him. Here's how this looks. Next point. God's faithful anger comes from his jealousy for us. I said that right, okay? His anger, or his anger comes from his jealousy for us. Countless times throughout the Old Testament, God tells us that his kindled anger is a direct result of his jealousy. God goes to great lengths in Scripture to identify himself and to identify his character with jealousy. He even tells Moses in Exodus 34 that his name is jealous and he is a jealous God. Just to leave no doubt for Moses on what God's character is. And we, when we hear jealous, our mind instantly defaults to the negative. Like right away, we think about when we're jealous, which is usually birthed out of sins of insecurity or of envy or, or, of, or of greed or identity or covetousness or pride. Because when, when jealousy manifests in us, it causes us to be possessive, greedy, and sometimes even abusive to people around us. But, but God's jealousy is not like that. See, our jealousy comes from sin, and this is why you hear things like from America's pastor, um, Oprah Winfrey, that, that she, I, I can't love and worship a God who's all-loving and all-knowing and all-powerful and who's jealous, jealous of me. Well, see, Oprah and her pride, not unlike us, she wrongly assumes that she possesses something that God wants but can't have. See, she thinks that God is jealous of her, that God wishes he was her. See, <laughs> he doesn't, just to be clear on that. But, but to be clear, God's not jealous of us, right? We're jealous of other people. We're jealous of other things. When, when I'm watching Million Dollar Rooms, and I see that Mark Wahlberg has a home gym that makes the Gold's Gym look like a broken Bowflex. I am like, I'm jealous of Mark Wahlberg. And so I see this awesome gym. It's got a great view. It's all this. I'm like, and my wife's probably jealous of his abs. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but she probably wishes I had those. Um, moving on. So when I feel that jealousy and I start watching, you know, Covet TV, I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta switch the channel or turn it off. Usually I just switch the channel. So that's, we're jealous of people, but God is jealous for people. Specifically, he's jealous for us, and he's jealous for his name. See, God's motives, including his jealousy, are pure. He's jealous for his name because God is about God before he is about us. As selfish as that might sound, it's actually for our benefit and for our joy. 
Because when God uses the word jealousy, he's describing his passion for his holy name. He's describing a zeal that demands exclusive devotion of his people. People that he's created, people who he provides for, people for who he loves. See, in Deuteronomy 6, you can turn there if you would, Deuteronomy 6, after laying out all the blessings of the promised land, he reminds Israel that he delivers them. And he says to them in verse 13, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, for he destroyed you, sorry, and he will destroy you from off the face of the earth. There's that anger, there's that jealousy, there's that wrath. So, what we see from that, though, is that he expects nothing less than for us to know and love him exclusively. He pursues us. That's important. We, we don't pursue him. He pursues us because he knows that being with him, us being with him, is the best thing for us. He knows that as God, he's the creator. He has the power to bless. He has the power to protect. And he is the source of all love and all joy there is to be had. See, he wants us to be close to him, not because he's needy, but because to know him, to be in a covenant relationship with him, is the greatest thing there is. I don't think we actually believe that. Because we turn from God and we pursue idols. And we pursue those idols even when we take good things that God's given us and we put them in a place of worship. See, he's jealous for us because he knows that whatever idols we've established cannot compare to him. He knows that there is nothing in creation that has the capacity to satisfy us, protect us, or love us as much as he as the creator can. So we still choose to sell ourselves. Verse 17, salty language. He calls Israel a whore. He says, you've sold yourself. You've sold your heart. You've sold your time. You've sold your money. You've sold your energy. You've sold your passion to idols. And God's moved to jealousy and to anger. See, jealousy is God's love burst into a flame. It's the flip side of, of, of his love because it's absolutely required where an exclusive love is called for. See, God's in a covenant relationship with these people. And in the Bible throughout, it's compared to a marriage where God is a loving and faithful husband and his people are his bride. If you're a... This is, this is difficult. But if you're a husband who's loved and been faithful to your bride and she's unfaithful to you, and you're not moved to some sort of anger or jealousy, you're just like, well, it's too bad. Win some, you lose some. Nobody would accuse you of being very loving. See, jealousy comes, righteous jealousy comes, when there's an intense, passionate love for someone, and you want 
and, and you want to be in an exclusive relationship with them. God's jealous because he's been rejected by his people for something that is absolutely inferior to him. He's jealous for his people because, in all honesty, he wants something better for them than they want for themselves. I, I struggle with this because I'm, um, I'm pretty judgmental. So with friends and, and family members and people around me, I just get frustrated because I see their lives at times running light years away from anything that's going to bring them any lasting joy and just pursuing things that I know is going to lead to destruction, to just frustration. And I just get, it, it, it makes me angry. And ultimately, I, I'm, I think maybe the word is jealous, that I want more for them than they seem to even want for themselves. My challenge, because I believe we all do this, but my challenge and our challenge is when that happens, for us to realize that is exactly how God feels about us all the time as we're just living out this cycle in our own lives. See, we're constantly pursuing idols. We're constantly getting some of God's grace and pursuing idols again. He wants more for us than we want for ourselves. So my prayer is that God's jealousy leads us not to be judgmental of others, but leads us to greater humility for ourselves as we realize this is the way that, that God deals with us. See, this is, a, this is a difficult and painful cycle to see idolatry leading to wrath, leading to grace, leading to more idolatry, leading to greater wrath. It's difficult, but we see that it does have a purpose. It's used by God. Turn back to Judges, if you would. Chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 21, go through verse 6. God lets, lets them know that, that this cycle's here for a purpose. He says, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Cana. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites and the Sidonites and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This does not end well. But we do see in this section, last point, that God's faithful anger shows us He loves us enough to train us and discipline us like a loving father should. So you've already said Joshua's generation failed to teach these people to fight sin and fight for righteousness. So, God's become the trainer. 
And so he uses these cycles to test hearts and to train new generations to actually know that there is a battle going on between idolatry and worship. And that it actually requires us to actually fight. Because God is a loving father to his people. And just like a loving husband is jealous for an unfaithful wife, a loving father absolutely disciplines his children. Because he knows that sometimes judicious punishment, sometimes temporary pain or an intentional trial is necessary to prevent or warn about a larger, longer, and more powerful wrath down the road. See, I want sin and idolatry and rebellion to hurt because I need that hurt to discipline me. I need that hurt to train me. I need that hurt to to grow me and and hopefully bring me, sometimes even kicking and screaming, back to God. When I think back to the darkest periods of my life, when I was pursuing sin harder than I was pursuing anything else, I praise God that I didn't find my sin so comfortable that it didn't make me want to get out. That's God's grace to be unfulfilled in sin. The scariest parts of my entire life have been when I've been so far down sin that I no longer found it painful at all. That I was comfortable in it. That I no longer cared about God's wrath or God's anger or God's love. I found the sin to be most attractive. It's it's that point where without the Holy Spirit, you can't turn around. See, God actually says in in Ezekiel at one point, he's he's had generations of going through the cycle with these Israelite people. At one point, he finally says, my wrath is poured out on you. I've punished you all I can. Wrath is done. So is my jealousy. I don't care anymore. That's essentially what he's saying. That is a dark and terrible place to be. So I praise God that he disciplines us that he punishes us, that that we don't get to be comfortable in sin. That he is gracious and loving. Even in his anger, he's gracious and loving because he intends his anger and his jealousy to be used for the purpose of reestablishing and rebuilding and retraining and restoring our relationship with him. Unfortunately, in this section of Judges, We don't see the people's relationship with God improving. It only gets worse. I'd love to tell you it gets better the next chapter or the next chapter, but it doesn't. It just goes from bad to worse to dark to deplorable. We're going to spend weeks and weeks in Judges, and in some sense, in Judges, it's not going to get better. That's not a plug for future sermons. just telling you how it is that at some points you are going to be so frustrated and so disgusted, you're just going to want to take a shower and be done with it. But the challenge is, Judges, is here. We need to actually learn from it. We need to to grow from it. We need to be taught something from it. So even though it's a difficult place to be, even though it's a difficult cycle that just cries out for it to be broken, even though in our own hearts we know that we ourselves are hopeless to do anything to break that cycle, it cries out for a Savior. So each week, we're going to come to Judges. 
And I want us, like today, to pause here in the difficult cycle. To to meditate here, to reflect here, and to learn here in what's happening in the darkness. But I don't want us to live here. Because the cycle, excuse me, the story doesn't end here. Right? There's a lot more Bible left. So we actually see in God's faithful anger, he actually uses to give us hope in the gospel. See, there's no gospel without God's anger. Because the gospel, in part, is the good news that God has loved us by unleashing that righteous, jealous anger and wrath on someone else. And that's beautiful. Because in love, God's no longer angry at us. See, He's poured out all of His anger on His Son so that we might actually experience His love. Part of His love for us is punishing that sin so comprehensively and so decisively on the cross that Jesus up there actually says, It is finished. The cycle is broken. The cycle the downward, that leads to this downward spiral that started by faithless fathers and continued by faithless generation is ultimately broken by a faithful God who inserts his perfect son Jesus into this mess of this dark cycle. See, Jesus had no sin of his own, so he didn't need any wrath. He had not earned any wrath, so he didn't need grace. So instead, Jesus willingly graciously, brutally bears the full burden of our idolatry and our sin and our ungodliness and our brokenness and our dirtiness and he carries it with him up to the cross. And he dies. The death that we deserve. He takes our wrath, our punishment. And because he rises from death, he leaves no doubt that through faith in him, our debt of sin has been paid then we can actually enjoy some eternal grace that we did nothing to earn. The flip side of this is, if you don't know Jesus, you are still living and trapped and condemned in the cycle of judges. You are an idolater. You are rebellious. There will be some wrath. In this lifetime, you may even experience some grace and some reprieves, but ultimately that cycle ends with your death. It's tragic, and it doesn't have to be so. We can repent. We can turn away from our idolatry. We can confess sin. We can end our rebellion. We can cling to the cross, and we can answer that call to follow Jesus. And we can actually begin to live new lives as disciples, actively walking away from our sin and rebellion with peace and hope, knowing that for those who are in Christ, our cycle doesn't end in death. It ends in love, mercy, and grace from the Lord through Christ. This is beautiful. I pray that this happens to all of us. Next week, this week, Friday, we are going to meditate on what Jesus did on the cross 
bearing that wrath, bearing that punishment for us. And just like this train wreck of judges, we're going to visit the cross, but we're not going to live on Friday. We're going to celebrate on Sunday in the resurrection and the newness of life. If you've not been baptized, if you've not shamelessly identified yourself with Jesus and says, I don't want to be part of the cycle of judges, I want to live in the grace and the mercy of the cycle of Christ, I encourage you to be baptized. Next week, we are going to baptize people and they are going to participate in a public funeral where they are going to die to themselves in their sin and be raised in the newness of life with Christ. And say, I don't want this cycle. I want Christ. Because at the end, I don't want sin and wrath. I want to worship God. I encourage you to do that. I'm going to pray. I'm going to close. And I'm going to pray to the one true God that puts all of our idols to shame. And then we're going to take communion here at the tables, and we're going to remember God's faithful anger and wrath poured out on His Son, Jesus, for His glory and for our joy so that we get to be in communion with Him. And we're going to give tithes and offerings not as pagan idolaters hoping to put some false god in our debt, but as joyful worshipers knowing that God has cleared our debt of sin in Christ and he provides us with all that we have. And just as we started our service, we are going to sing. And we are going to sing praises to the creator God who is the only one worth singing to.